present of the Kulin Nation, we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast Tuesday edition. Uh, today is Tuesday, the 7th of September. In the studio, we've got myself, Fung, Genevieve, and then in the other studio, we've got Carnegie and Evie. Good morning, everyone. Morning. Good morning. Good morning. How is everyone this week? We have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I was yeah. just saying before that it just uh, same same old every day at the moment, but uh, you know the the usual try to go outside for at least an hour, get some sunshine, exactly, mm. all the rest of it. Look up some cute animal news, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think that's the only thing that's really um, getting us by <laughs> at the moment. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, the doggies won on Saturday. So that was super exciting. <laughs> that was a great game. Wasn't it a great game? I, I was watching that with just like my hands covering my eyes for the last right? five minutes. <laughs> I know. It was absolutely nerve wracking. I can't, mm. it would be really shit to be the team that lost by one point. <laughs> the grand. You, are you going to get like a permit to go to Perth? If oh, the yeah, I was going to say the grand finals in Perth. I Which I mean, know. fair enough. I, they obviously can't have it here. No. <laughs> um, I would love to. That would be incredible, but sounds sounds unlikely. <laughs> I reckon the doggies will win it this year. I think. Do you think? Choke. <sighs> no. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Melbourne hasn't won since like the sixties. I 60s. know. I know. Look, <laughs> Wait, I, no. ideally yeah. a final would be Melbourne and the Bulldogs. But yeah. I, I can't remember who, who's. I can't remember the fixture is next week. Me oh, neither. Uh, yes, Port. Port Adelaide. Yeah. Yeah. So it could happen. Could happen. It could happen. <laughs> Um, well, obviously people at home can't see, but it looks like Genevieve is wearing the Melbourne uh, colours yeah. um, yeah. on her vest. My friend would, like, kill me if she said that I wasn't going to support Melbourne <laughs> this year. <laughs> Just because she was like, when I was, like, a baby, her um, parents took her to, I think, Melbourne's last grand final when she was, like, in 1998. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> or, wow. no, it might have been earlier than that. But, um, yeah, so she's very much eagerly awaiting Melbourne's hopeful win. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, well, let's go through what we have on the uh, sh- upcoming on the show today. It's a really busy show. I feel like we say this every week, but it feels true it's this week, especially. busier than ever. <laughs> it's busier than ever. Just after seven or just after the news headlines, we're going to play some songs that were written and performed by the grade five and six students at Sacred Heart Primary School in Fitzroy. They worked with um, Storyscape as well as some professional musicians to help come up with these songs. They're really great. Um, And in between those two songs, we're going to play an interview that I did with, yeah, some of the teachers in grade five, six students from Sacred Heart Primary yesterday, which is really cute. Um, And they talk about their songs, Let It Grow and 
Double Double Culture. Double Double Culture actually won um, the grade four to six category at the Multicultural Film Festival this year. So that's really exciting. Um, so, so that's coming up just after the news headlines. And then at 7.30. Yeah, I've got, um, well, I had the pleasure of speaking to Renuga Impakuma, who um, is a spokesperson and activist for the Tamil Refugee Council. Um, Renuga just spoke to us a little bit about, I guess, how the pandemic has impacted uh, Tamil refugees in particular, and also um, the devastating passing of Kaneshwaran Krishna Pillay. Um, Renuga is an incredible speaker. Um, and I just learned recently that she actually went to the UN when she was like 17 oh, <laughs> to speak. Wow. So very special. And then after that, at 7.45, we're going to speak to Brianna and Brendan from the Stop the Menzies Institute campaign to talk about the current campaign to stop Melbourne Uni from opening the Robert Menzies Institute, which, yeah, says that it's going to be um, this uh, bipartisan uh, library research centre and museum honouring Robert Menzies, but it's being sponsored by this right-wing conservative think tank and a lot of the board members are um, well-known conservatives so we're going to talk about the impacts of that and uh, I guess what we can all do to get involved and then and then after that we'll be speaking with uh, Julie Kuhn who is the CEO of WIRE which is a Victorian statewide organization with a vision of creating a society in which women are safe respected valued and empowered um, so WIRE, um, along with some other community organizations, is urgently asking for action at the 2021 Women's Safety Summit, which launched yesterday. And we will speak to Julie about the letter that they wrote. And lastly, we'll be speaking to Lucy Grahulkova, who is the Executive Director of Digital Rights Watch in Australia. Uh, we're going to be chatting about the Surveillance Legislation Amendment or the Identify and Disrupt Bill that was recently passed through both houses of Parliament. Uh, there's a lot of uh, quite frightening uh, amendments to security law that have given the Australian government a mass surveillance mandate. So we're going to have a chat about what this means for just for regular Australians and what it means for our internet privacy. Great. So a very busy show. So please stay tuned. Um, right now we're going to go to some news headlines. Does anyone want to start us off? Yeah. So um, there has been some more uh, reporting around the police, of course, which we like to hold accountable on this show. Um, there's been reports that a former police officer in Victoria is facing um, court and has been charged with rape and misconduct um, for almost 100 offences, including allegations that he raped a woman at a police station and had an intimate affair with the victim of crime. Um this is, you know, we often have a, this conversation on this show where uh, we talk about how the police in various states across Australia un, uh, abuse their power and are not held accountable for their actions. And this is another example of how that's continuing to happen. Um, and at the same time, there's, of course, uh, reports from New South Wales where um Police officers are being charged with stalking, domestic violence. Not too long ago, we heard from Queensland, where a really 
worrying percentage of the police force was uh, involved in cases of domestic violence. And, yeah, this is just kind of an ongoing thing. Yeah, especially in like, like in Queensland, you mentioned there was also that case of um, the guy who disclosed details of um, a domestic violence victim to her abuser yeah. as well. It's just an ongoing problem that constantly gets dismissed as bad apples. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I don't know how long we can keep reading these reports to sort of realise it's a much more systemic issue across mm. the board. Um, and then... Uh, you mentioned earlier, Carnegie, that the Women's Safety Summit launched yesterday. Yeah, um, it did. And we've, Scott Morrison has uh, said that, you know, it can't, it's an issue that can't be ignored, uh, which I think Brittany Higgins had an excellent response to on Twitter, um, where she said, you know, the government's actions don't necessarily reflect what they're saying, mm-hmm. um, yeah, which I thought was... She wasn't even invited to the summit in yeah, the first instance, yeah. which is incredible to me. Um, even just from a PR perspective, you'd think that, you know, she would be at the if forefront. Nothing, yeah, if nothing else, a PR perspective. <laughs> <laughs> just purely thinking, even from Scott Morrison's marketing point of view. Yeah. Um, but, no, she was, um, she was actually invited um, through um, Victims of Crime Support um, to make sure that she was there as a delegate. Um, and Grace Tame was also um, at the summit, um, but also had similar things to say about Scott Morrison, which is, you know, like uh, just the, the lack of sincerity and also using the words of women who were victims of crime um, to make his sort of formal address, but then not actually acknowledge those victims in any other way mm-hmm. other than to make a speech. Yeah, well, um, looking forward to your interview, Carnegie, with Julie later today. Um, Hopefully we can talk more about this yeah. and, and the action needed. Uh, we're going to go to a quick break and we'll be back right after this. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Right now we're going to go to a song called Let It Grow, which was written and performed by the Grade 5 and 6 students in the Flourish class at Sacred Heart Primary School. Storyscaped worked with the students to help them explore and articulate their identity using creative writing, songwriting, dance, narrative therapy processes, participatory video and photography. It was produced in collaboration with musicians Monkey Mark, Mantra, Zoe Barry and Esther Henderson and with choreographer and dance instructor Dagogo. Um, I know you can't watch the video, but I highly recommend that you do because it is very, uh, it's very impressive and very heartwarming. So here it is. This is Let It Grow. We gotta let it go, we gotta let the bad fruit fall, let it go Let the roots in the tree give you everything you need to succeed, let the tree grow free It's your boy Manny, I'm 11 years old You know me, I like to ball I am the best out of the rest You know me, I don't play chess 
I love my mom so much. When I see her, I give her a hug. My name is O'Connie. I like friendship and honesty. I am South Sudanese. It's my nationality. I go cultural parties. Leave myself a nod means culture and how you act makes a big impact. Family means the most. That's my everything. You gotta listen to the culture Never give it up, never break it up Just take it up Chilling with the feeling like you're grilling Listen to the feeling like you're not a super villain Yeah, my family's vibing to this beat Yeah, I just got a BMW Flight test to my friend, psych, I don't have one Meanwhile, I'm vibing to this beat 24-7, me with my family Chill, we're free then. Yeah, yeah, yeah With our community It's always willing When I'm chilling with my villain Yeah, it's a docu Wanna know my mate My country South Sudan I'm a basketball fan I love gymnastics My teacher and my family I love school and my cousin I'm internationally In the country of Australia We have history and culture In our veins Together we are a very special community Ethiopian, Ethiopia is in Africa next to Etria. It's kinda small, but has a big community with me and my big, big family. There are different places, races, faces in Australia. In this country, no one is a failure. Diversity is interesting and unique. The color of our skin and the languages we speak. Let it go, we gotta let it go. We gotta let the bad fruit fall, let it go. Let the roots in the tree give you everything you need to succeed and your tree grow free. Together as a group, we respect other communities just like how we respect our families. In the world, everyone is special in their own way. People show new skills every day. To be successful in life, you gotta work harder when everyone works harder, their future will be smart. Our cultures are special to each other. We accept other people's culture. Everybody belongs with each other. Make everybody gather together. People came together and became a community. Everybody have fun and continue their history. Vietnamese and Sudanese are our cultures. The community is our family future. Every culture belongs together, the community's getting better. I love my family, all my family. Gonna rap in the future for my community. I wanna be a president, I love eating Aussie food. 
My name is Aisha, I come from Uganda It might be small but we all live as one My family is close to me and take much care of me We should all live in a community Let it go, we gotta let it go We gotta let the bad fruit fall, let it go Let the roots in the tree give you everything you need to succeed Let the tree grow free So that was the song Let It Grow by the five, six students in the Flourish class at Sacred Heart Primary School. Uh, So yesterday I had the pleasure of speaking with some teachers and the students from this primary school in Fitzroy. They spoke to me about their project with Storyscape, where they wrote and produced two songs and accompanying video clips, one of the songs we heard just before, Let It Grow. Their other video, Double Double Culture, recently won at the Multicultural Film Festival. The students spoke to me about what it was like to work in this collaborative project, the reaction from their friends and families, as well as the importance of their cultural identity and what it means to share this with others in the community. I would like to thank the teachers, Tegan, Zoe and Esther, as well as the grade five, six students, Charlene, Liani, Halani and Aisha for sharing their experiences with us. So Tegan, could you tell us a bit about this project? What was it like to coordinate and plan these videos? Sure. So we were lucky enough to uh, get a special grant um, for our school and we used that grant to use a company called Storyscape who came in and worked with us and our children and lots of other amazing uh, artists who came in and collaborated with all of our children to give them the chance to speak about their culture and create something that um, they could keep. And so it was a lo- it was a long process and it was, you know, we had our tricky moments, but overall it was a really exciting time where the children were able to be involved in um, writing their own lyrics. They were able to produce the videos, come up with dance choreography with a professional um, dancer. So they had, they were able to have their own little flair on each aspect of the component of, comp- of making this video. Um, and I know that each of them began at a certain point and then they're all able to identify how much they grow from that experience. So it was not only about sharing their culture, but also learning all these new skills and being able to collaborate with each other and professionals as well. Uh, my name's Esther and I'm a violin teacher and I teach with um, my beautiful friend and mentor, Zoe Barry. And, yeah, I'm Zoe and I teach the cello part of the program with the amazing Esther. Great. So what was it like for you to to work on this project with, with the students? It was... Um, it was really wonderful because we're a string program. All, all of the students from years three to six learn cello or violin. And, of course, a big part of that is performance. And we haven't been able to perform really, you know, all of last year in this. Mm. So we've been building up all these skills and the students are doing so well and they get such meaning out of the music, but we haven't been able to share it. Um, we've found some ways to do it. So... To have this project where the string playing could be part of it, but also all of the work we do with rhythms and listening and analysing music and arranging it, we we got this beautiful experience of seeing all of the skills that these amazing students have. They just poured it straight into the project and the musicians and um, artists we were working with were really blown away by how... Um, 
what experts these students are and what sophisticated uh, musicians and lyricists they are. So it was really beautiful to get to see that and see the students really bloom. Yeah. So part of the process was each class had time with a rapper called Mantra and a producer called Monkey Mark. And so we'd have an hour with each and then the classes would swap over. So with um, Monkey Mark, um, the he made the beats and the kids got to pick at the beginning. So they found their favourite beat to work with. And then we kind of workshopped all together different little ostinatos and hooks and the kids came up with pretty much all of the hooks that are featured, um, yeah, in the music. And in the rapping um, and rhyming workshop, Mantra was really amazing and energetic and kind of helped the kids use their culture um, as inspiration for yeah, the basis of their raps. So lots of brainstorming and lots of group work and, yeah. And you can hear in the raps that each student came up with a very individual one that is just so snappy and sharp and they've all got their own rhythms going on and they're all telling their story very succinctly and the wisdom that comes across and the kindness and the generosity in, you know, in just a few lines of rapping, I, I just think is amazing. And it's such a testament to um, the amazing teachers um, at this school who really draw that out of the students and the students themselves who are just, they're moving through the world and thinking about things uh, very deeply. So I understand that Helena and Aisha are going to talk to us about their song and video, Let It Grow. I might start with you, Helena. What is the song about? So Let It Grow is about our families and all the people in our classroom, you know, they're sharing their stories about their families, where they come from, and I guess who they are today, and I guess how it impacts on their life. Great. Thank you so much. Aisha, can I ask you, why is it important for us to share stories about our lives and our families with each other it matters because people can like know where you come from and like they like you, they know your personality i might ask you another question what was your favorite part about um the project about creating the song let it grow um the best bit is like um, when we got to like play with the cameras and also learning like about other people's cultures. Charlene, could you tell us um, about your song Double Double Culture? What does that mean? It was like a beat that we made in um, school and uh, one of our classmates, Araba, he decided to put the word school and culture into the beat. So, um, it kind of made this song like that. Liani, could you tell us what's so special about this song, Double Double Culture? Special to us because um, it's like embracing everybody's culture and who they are. Uh, how did it feel to be able to express yourself using music and dance? It, um, yeah. At the start, I was like really nervous and I didn't really want to like do anything. And during the process, I got more confident at and at the end, I was, like, really enjoying it. 
And um, I thought it was like, really fun to um, embrace myself during music and um, dance. Thank you. So what was the reaction or response to to the song and the video um, from, you know, your friends, your family and the wider community? I might start with you, Charlene. Um, when we won the award online, my parents were a bit curious because they never really heard of it and they didn't know what was happening. So um, my mom, she kept watching it and then she started um, cheering on and she was really happy when we won. Thank you, Charlene. Aisha, how about you? My family and my mom are really proud of me because um, in all the videos the classes made we were like expressing our cultures and like how like where our families came from and everything and Helena how about you my mum was very proud and she was saying that I represented my you know my country very well and she said that I was doing very good and I knew a lot about my culture and Liani um, my mom was like really happy and proud that um, our class won, like not only our class but the whole five six, um, because like the work and effort that we put into it, and it was. Um, I told her like how fun it was, but I didn't really want to tell her what I was gonna say in the whole thing because I wanted to keep it a surprise. Asia, can you tell us about your your lyric in in the song, um, and maybe a bit more about your own culture? I come from Uganda and it's a small country in Africa and I celebrate my culture by like making traditional food and going to traditional parties and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe Liani, do you want to go next? Um, hi, my name is Liani and I come from Ethiopia. Um, I kind of remember my lyrics, I mm-hmm. think it's um, I go to Sacred Heart, everybody has a part, I'm happy and faithful, I'm also very faithful, and then then I say, like, I live with my mum, my brother and me, and then we're family, wait, we come from Ethiopia and we're a family, and, um, like, the way that I embrace, like, my culture is um, celebrating and praying and going to a special occasions, and, yeah. Great, thank you. Thank you, Liani. Helena? Hi, I'm Helena and I'm Ethiopian and um, well in the song the lyrics I think it was Hi, I'm Helena and I'm from Ethiopia. Ethiopia is next to Eritrea and it's in the east of Africa. Yeah, I guess I celebrate my culture by going to special occasions, eating Ethiopian meals, going to church, praying. Shall we? My parents were we're like um, Buddhist, and we go to the temple on special occasions, like um, on New Year. And sometimes, um, like if COVID wasn't here, we'd go to a lot of temples for um, more luck. And when we see like an elder person, we always have to bow to them and treat them with a lot of respect. For our listeners who, who don't know much about Sacred Heart Primary, how would you describe your school? Um, our school, the, we all live near each other 
and um, we don't judge each other for our race and ethnicity. Uh, we just treat each other like we're all friends with each other. Helena, very welcoming and very respectful of everybody's culture. Aisha, yeah. Our school is a multicultural school, and like it's really um our school's like a really helpful school. Like they help all our families, and yeah. Yeah, go for it, Liani. Um, our school is like um very diverse, and I think like three years ago we had like multicultural day, which was like basically different stations with different cultures. And you get to try like food and like other stuff like that activities. That sounds really special. It sounds like a really nice place to to go to school. That was an interview that I had with some of the five, six students and their teachers from Sacred Heart Primary School talking about their two projects with Storyscape one called Let It Grow and the next one we're going to play which is called Double Double Culture and um, this one at this year's uh, Multicultural Film Festival. Here it is. Everybody has a part. I'm happy and playful and I'm also very faithful. I live with my mum, my brother and me. We're from Ethiopia and we're a family. In our song, the beat feels a culture. Family's important, they help and protect. We talk about stuff, we hang out, we play. We can be successful every day. I was born in Australia, my name is Annie. I have a relationship with my food and my family. I can smell the curry, a soup that is spicy. If you eat it with bread, you don't eat it with rice. Today I'm feeling happy and cool, writing all my ideas at school. Sometimes I hate it, I'm in a bad mood, but then I start getting into the groove. I am the eldest of my family, that gives me responsibilities. Where we come from is our culture. Family give us our culture. Double double culture, double double school. 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 Cousins and family, my relationships all together means a lot to me. The active class means good in my language, dancing and moving around with my family. My cousin Bobo plays basketball. When he's on the court, he's unstoppable. If you give me a ball, I can spin it for a minute. You know I don't play, but I'm in it to win it. Behind the back, when I dribble with the ball, it's my favorite movie in basketball. Black and white, number 51. Shooting guard, always on the run. Hello, my name is Edwin. I come from a place called Vietnam. I like to play with my little sister. Fried chicken, rice with soy sauce. My name is Kiddos. I like to play soccer. I break your ankles hard. My friend is Atticus. When we fight, we unite again. 
We are united, we are community. Where you come from is your community. We are together, we are in unity. Happy and playful, what makes us family? Every Thursday, I rap in the studio. Do you know I can make dramatic flow? Microphones, keyboards, drum machine. I can rap and freestyle about who I wanna be. The name's Tina Chan, over here, Shalin Fan. We both have big families, we're from a big clan. The name Shaling Fan over here is Tina Tran. We both love and tell and we're from Vietnam. My name is Rain, a normal girl. My birthday's in May and I'm amazing. I put my chip back that no one's ever seen. I'm lazy so I watch anime. I'm Chinese and I'm proud of it. This school I go to... I will never leave it. Soon, I will have to quit. And I care more than a bit. This beat is holy. When I die, I go high. Still think about the school, even when I die. Even when I'm not away. I'm myself, and I'm not like the others. Fried rice just like my mother's. Double, double culture, double, double school. Double, double culture. So playing in the background there is Double Double Culture by the grade five and six class uh, from the Hope class at Sacred Heart Primary. Today, we have a very special guest on the show, Renuga Inpakuma, a spokesperson and activist for the Tamil Refugee Council. Renuga is on the show today to talk to us about the current threat of deportation that thousands of Tamil refugees currently face in Australia. Many have endured Australia's regime of detention camps after fleeing Sri Lanka for their lives. If they return to Sri Lanka, they face state-based discrimination and persecution. And obviously during the pandemic, this threat has been amplified as well as added continuous financial stress being placed on all refugees unable to access welfare benefits in Australia. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Tamil community lost Kanishwaran Krishna Pillay, a Tamil refugee who had been waiting for more than eight years for permanent protection and safety. Welcome on the show, Renuga. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. First of all, just wanted to start off, uh, could you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a bit about how you got involved uh, in the Tamil Refugee Council? Yep, so um, my name is Renika Imbukumar and ever since I was 12, I visited um, detention centres and I actually visited um, Villawood Detention Centre with my father on Christmas Eve to deliver Christmas um, presents and that's where I understood that we have a genocide as well as we have many refugees who have tried to flee the ongoing genocide that the Sri Lankan government have um, placed on us. And that was when I realized that these refugees are placed in detention for more than, you know, three years. They've been in detention for seven years. And that's when I realized I have to uh, expose genocide that the Sri Lankan government have placed on us as well as expose the Australian government's treatment towards Tamil refugees. And, you know, it was so great to join Tamil Refugee Council. They, you know, have helped me so much in understanding human rights issues as well as shaping me as an individual that I am today. 
Yeah. And I wanted to get into a little bit about the council itself, because uh, I do believe it's been around for um, just under a decade, around seven mm-hmm. years. Yeah. And um, could you tell us a little bit about the council um, and what its aims are for the refugee community? Yep. So the Tamil Refugee Council is the voice of Tamil refugees in Australia. So TRC engages in media liaison, individual advocacy, educational work and campaigning for the rights of individuals and the refugee population as a whole. So much of our work involves raising awareness of the particular challenges facing um, that Tamil people face in the community and to also try and change the Australian refugee policy because it needs to be changed. Um, We educate people about the history of Tamil oppression and the ongoing oppression that we face from the Sri Lankan government. And we have connections in Indonesia, Malaysia, India, and the United Kingdom and other countries. And we participate in the global struggle for Tamil rights. Wow. Yeah. Um, And I know that 3CR has had uh, a few connections with the Tamil Refugee Council um, as well. And they do incredible work. Uh, so if anyone wants to find out more, you can definitely visit the website. Uh, but more concentrating, I guess, on the pandemic and I guess the huge toll that the pandemic has taken on everyone, but especially refugees. Uh, yeah. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about what kind of issues and hardships that uh, refugees and more specifically to build refugees have been facing during the pandemic? Yeah. So I feel the pandemic now has created a massive toll on Tamil refugees and um, other refugees in the community Um, because, you know, you got refugees who are released from detention. Whilst being released from detention is really good, um, these refugees are placed on visas such as temporary protection visas, which, you know, causes refugees to live life um, in limbo, not knowing where the future is you know, holds. And so, you know, having a pandemic and having to work tirelessly just to gain money is so difficult. Um, And this COVID pandemic, you know, they're away from family. And now that we're in severe lockdown in New South Wales, most of the Tamil community here can't see each other. So we don't have that support network. And it's sad because you've got people who have extreme mental health issues in the Tamil community. And you know, having to watch Afghanistan um, during the pandemic causes another, you know, fear in the Afghanistan community. And they have so many refugees in their community. So it's just, I feel the COVID pandemic, it has not supported refugees in any sort of way. And it is another form of detention for these refugees. And, you know, it just causes more problems in their life, added stress. So I feel like the COVID pandemic, it has caused refugees to really has put a toll on their lives. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if anything, the what we've learned from the pandemic is that it's amplified any sort of issues that were already existing. And for the refugee yeah, community, um, I can't imagine what it's been like. And I guess it would be traumatising seeing what's happening with Afghanistan at the moment and uh, Australia's blatant reluctance to kind of go in mm-hmm. there and help the most vulnerable. Yeah, it's funny when Scott Morrison kind of says that he has great sympathy for the Afghan population, but you've got Afghan uh, refugees who are in detention for more than seven years. And you've got, you know, since 2002, Afghan youths have tried to draw awareness. You know, it's, it's just terrible. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I just wanted to say my deepest condolences to your community and the passing of Kanishwaran Krishna Pillay. And I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, 
what were some of the struggles that Kanishwaran was facing as a refugee? And do you think these struggles are felt amongst others in the Tamil community? So Kanishwaran, I think he's an individual that kind of, he highlighted what the Tamil community go through every single day. And that is that these refugees are placed in detention first for a long time. You've got refugees placed in detention for eight years. Then once they are released, they're handed a TPV or Chev visa. And even that, that just causes another added stress to their life. And so you got Connor Swarren, who's he worked as a cleaner and he was trying to support his three children and wife and he was the breadwinner. And having all that stress causes, like, you know, psychological suffering. Um, and this is basically because of the Australians' cruel, inhumane refugee policy. Um, and he, he really, I think, what had happened, it was just, and it was like nothing new that we've experienced as a community. It was, it was just very devastating for us. And it was more devastating that uh, no mainstream media had put coverage on it, you know, so it's very hidden from the outside community. So no one really knows what refugee communities face. And, you know, he fled Sri Lanka trying to seek a better life. Um, but sadly, he didn't receive it. And that's the truth that us Tamil people go through is that whilst we have so many individuals in our community trying to flee from Sri Lanka, they are placed behind bars. And even when they're released from detention, um, they're still, you know, I guess, discriminated against from the Australian um, government, um, not receiving the adequate treatment they need, not receiving adequate medical help, um, which just causes more suicide um, situations to occur in our community. Yeah, definitely. And I think that was such an important point, you know, that this is nothing new. This is not an isolated um, event. This is something that's felt amongst the community. And, yeah, it wasn't reported on a lot at all. No. We were very surprised. Yeah. 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 In terms of the Australian government, you know, obviously we've talked about the continued blatant disregards they have for the well-being of refugees. But I guess in a ideal situation and what the council is pushing for the government to do, um, what do you hope the Australian government will do for refugees, um, especially in these times of hardship? Jeez, they could do so much um, for these refugees. Like, I firstly think that the Australian government needs to follow the law. They're not doing that. So you've got like the Migration Act 1958. They're not following that. No way. They've got people who are kept in detention for so long after, you know, the UN working group have commented on their treatment towards refugees. Um, And you've also got, I think, both parties, Labor and Liberal, who have blatantly just ignored what the community is trying to tell them. And I was really happy that after the situation with the Murugapan family, that people have realized that it's both parties that have caused problems for us as a community and for many refugees. And I think that the government needs to actually, in the nicest way that I can say, is kind of step off their high horse. You don't have and to be kind nice. of, <laughs> um, Step off their um, high horse and I think read the cases. Go to the detention centres, meet these individuals. They're not terrorists, no. These are individuals who have left their family trying to seek freedom. And I think it's, I find it extremely upsetting when You've got Minister Alex Hawke saying, oh, Sri Lanka is safe. No, it's not. It's not safe. It never was. Since 1948, we have been experiencing persecution. And it's just outrageous when I've got an individual trying to say that it's safe. And it's not a civil war. It was a planned systemic genocide. And I think that's what 
I think the government needs to be educated in what we went through and be educated that they need to actually help us. And also um, seeking asylum by boat is not criminal. It is the only form that in, um, refugees can seek asylum when trying to flee persecution. And, you know, I've, I'm not going to be surprised when um, you've got many Afghan individuals coming by boat pretty soon and the Australian government is going to ignore that, but that is the only form that they can come because there are no planes there for them to come. And I think that also, that taboo of um, seeking asylum as a crime needs to be demolished because it's not. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's just so condescending, the fact that especially a Western country who exacerbates a lot of uh, issues in international politics and then refuses to kind of take responsibility for those problems. Yes. And especially when they've, you know, helped the Sri Lankan government kind of, uh, you know, do the genocide. They've provided five aerial drones. They've provided personal protection equipment to the Sri Lankan government. Um, but we all know as a Tamil community that this equipment and use of um, information will just stop uh, stop Tamil refugees coming uh, here, which is just, yeah, I feel like the Australian government has, I feel like the Australian government has a lot of blood on their hands because that's what it looks like, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And just for our listeners that might want to, you know, read a bit more or reach out and support, especially support. Um, I know that you've set up a GoFundMe page for Kanishwaran's yeah. family and support the broader uh, ref- Tamil refugee community. Where can they go? Definitely go on um, the Facebook Tamil Refugee Council. We're always releasing media releases and kind of updating the wider community, what happens in our community. And recently we even did, did a um, photo petition for the Afghan refugees showing solidarity towards them, even um, donating for the GoFundMe page. That would be wonderful as well. Um, Supporting the family now because um, they do need the help, all the help that they can get after what had had occurred for them. Um, And also just being updated with the Murugapan family. uh, We also help with that as well. So just visiting the um, Facebook page, maybe giving us a message if you would like to be, involved because we have monthly meetings so if you'd like to be involved just let us know yeah definitely we can provide a link um up on our website for that one uh well thank you so much Renuga. it's been such a pleasure having you on thank you so much for having me that was uh Renuga Mpakuma uh, spokesperson for the Tamil Refugee Council. Uh, if that conversation brought up any unpleasant um, feelings or uh, triggered anything, uh, please call Lifeline, which is 131114. Uh, also, I urge people to please check out the Tamil Refugee Council website um, and also the GoFundMe page, which has been put in place to support Kanishwaran Krishna Pillay's family. So there is a current uh, a current campaign to stop Melbourne University from opening the Robert Menzies Institute, which is due to open in November. While the institute posters as a library, research centre and museum honouring Robert Menzies, it is being sponsored by the right wing and explicitly partisan think tank, the Menzies Research Centre. We are joined today by Brianna and Brendan from the Stop the Menzies Institute campaign to talk us through this. Welcome to 3CR. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Uh, could you please start by introducing yourselves as well as your involvement in this campaign? Um, and we'll start with you, Brianna. 
Yeah, um, cool. So I've been, I guess, an activist at Melbourne Uni for, as I've been studying there, um, last year campaigned against um, cuts that the management were putting through um, on staff. And so, yeah, I guess I've just been involved in the campaign, sort of, um, yeah, helping build it on campus and get students involved, um, stuff like that. Great. And Brendan? Um, yeah, uh, well, I've been a long-term activist. I, I've worked on different um, social justice issues in Houston for about 10 years, and um, I started doing a Master's of Teaching earlier this year, and that's why I got involved in this and other um, campaign organizing at Melbourne Uni, because, yeah, it's really an affront. Yeah, so for listeners who aren't aware of what's happening, could you please give us a brief summary of events? Um, what is the Menzies Institute? And um, what sort of impact would the opening of this centre have on the university? Um, Brendan? Yeah, well, so I guess it was about three years ago now. um, The university struck a deal with this right-wing think tank, the Menzies Research Centre, to open up what they call a museum and a statue to Robert Menzies. And there's a lot of, like, specifically anti-social justice messaging with that because they put out these press releases at the same time that the Black Lives Matter movement was happening in the United States and around the world, and people were staring, tearing down racist statues and said, instead of tearing down statues, we we're putting them up. And they, they plan to intentionally venerate Robert Menzies, whose legacy is far from, from progressive and far from oriented towards the the diversity that is in Australia right now. And the people behind it are a a hard right um, liberal party think tank who have an explicit agenda of promoting a Christian conservative family value system, going against a lot of the um, diversity in education and the gains that have been made, and and specifically promoting the liberal party at every turn. Yeah, um... Um, yeah, so it, it does sound that is it is incredibly, you know, explicitly conservative and explicitly partisan. Um, Brianna, could you tell us who are some of the people who uh, make up the um, the think tank? Um, yeah, so I guess some of the more notorious people on the board are people like um, Peter Credlin, um, who's like a Sky News commentator, uh, commentator and uses her platform um, in on that sort of, yeah, to just promote, like Brendan was saying, hard right conservative politics. Like, I think you were talking to someone from the uh, Tamil, um, yeah, sort of refugee uh, board before. And one thing that she has been doing during when the Murugambi family question was big in news was campaigning to send uh, them back to Sri Lanka, the Tamil mm-hmm. family. So it's the kind of, yeah, politics of the hard right that she represents as well. Um, and there's also, I guess, uh, Jeffrey Hone, who's the chairperson of the IPA, which is another explicit, you know, right-wing think tank, celebrates free market um, capitalism and all kinds of um, stuff like that. Um, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, these are all figures that we all know. Um, uh, I mean, it's definitely here at 3CR, but, um, you know, they've been in the news a lot um, for, yeah, uh, things that they've said. Um, in July, Monica from, from the campaign actually joined Annie from on Solidarity Breakfast here at 3CR to talk about that campaign. What has happened since then? Um, and we'll start with you, Brianna. 
Yeah. Um, so she would have mentioned the fact that we have an open letter um, that's been sort of yeah put out, basically opposing the institute and calling on the university to better represent students and staff's interests in making um, decisions around um, stuff like this. And um, that open letter has like pretty much a thousand, uh, almost a thousand signatures at this point. A lot of um, staff and students who've expressed sort of outrage. Um, there's been a decent amount of like coverage as well in the media, I think. Mm. Um, and we've also put on things like uh, forums and events for students and supporters to come along to. Um, so we had a forum just last week um, with uh, some guest speakers. So I guess uh, Janine Leanne um, was one of them. Mm. She's a Wurundjeri woman and activist and a creative writer, um, writing lecturer at Melbourne Uni. And um, she went through some of the... Um, yeah, like more like racist aspects of Benzie's legacy, like the um, nuclear testing on um, the Maralinga people and stuff like that, which was really good, I think. So, yeah, we're a bit limited, I think, by the fact that um, Melbourne's in lockdown, but mm-hmm. we've been putting on online events and I think setting the groundwork for when we can go back on campus to have, yeah, some real resistance on the ground. Definitely. Yeah, and I think all of this is... Uh, even more ironic because I know that the university has um, been open about, you know, there's been staff cuts, um, there's been an open struggle with, you know, uh, the amount of money that's coming in and the fact that there's, you know, this millions of dollars worth of uh, institute that's just going up um, in the middle of a pandemic. Um I guess you touched on there's been um, an open letter, but what has been the overall response from, like, students? Like, have people mostly been uh, outraged? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the vast majority of response has been outrage and surprise that the university would have something this partisan. Um, whenever we talk to people, whatever they hear about it, they're like, wait, what? The old quad mm-hmm. <laughs> is doing this? And at the same time, that, um, yeah, like you said, it's literally the same party who is cutting funding and raising fees, as well as the system that really um, exploits international students with exorbitant fees. Mm-hmm. They are, they're, they're basically, the university is allowing them to buy a giant megaphone on campus where they just get to espouse their liberal rhetoric, promote cuts, say that we need to let the virus rip and let everybody especially the most vulnerable in our community, be exposed to the ravages of COVID. They say diversity has gone too far and we need to get away from woke language. And they're really culture warriors, but on the side of trying to ram through conservative culture. Mm-hmm. And on top of the, the stuff that uh, Bree said, since we've been um, in lockdown, we've been trying to find COVID safe ways to protest. A lot of... Um, a lot of activists have been coming forward with creative ideas like check-ins and reviews and creating virtual protests, as well as um, we had an event last week where we sort of stormed an arts faculty um, Q&A session because Duncan Maskell and the university chancellor won't meet with us to talk, so we have to find our ways to do it. Really? And, the, vi- yeah. the vice chancellor won't meet with you to talk? Yeah, now the the university uh, administration is not really interested in hearing students around um, most of these issues. Um, Yeah, it's part of the problem. mm, Yeah, and and it's amazing that you have found these ways to to make sure that your voices are being heard. 
Um, now, this isn't the first time that universities have, I guess, been um, the grounds for conservative programs and centres. Can you tell us a bit about the the Ramsey Centre and, you know, the controversial program in Western civilization? Well, yeah, there's actually a quite an explicit link between the Menzies Institute and the, yeah, the Ramsey Centre. So when the idea for setting up the Menzies, Menzies Institute was floated in um, 2017, like Glenn Davis was the VC um, on, um, of Melbourne Uni and has since gone on to actually be, um, I think, the CEO of um, the, um, yeah, the... Um, Institute that was setting up the Ramsey Center in other universities. Um, so it's pretty clear what side um, he's been on. Um, but yeah, I think that um, is a really good example and has been a good example for our campaign, actually, the sort of fight back that went on at um, University of Sydney, um, University of Melbourne, when they were trying to establish a very explicit um, celebration of mm. um, conservative values on campus. And so, yeah, some things that they did was like organize, you know, obviously like student protests, but also you know, student general meetings to kind of, like, be a voice of, you know, student democracy on campus and actually vote down um, having this, um, yeah, this, this centre on campus. So I think, yeah, um, orienting the campaign towards actually how can we better um, try and inject some, like, student staff, like, um, yeah, like, sort of democracy and actually, like, have a say in what kind of... Um, yeah, um, things are coming onto our campus and stuff. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I mentioned earlier that this institute is, is supposed to open in November. Um, I guess my last question for, for each of you is where to from here? Um, what can we do between now and, and then to help support uh, this campaign to, to stop the, the Menzies Institute? Um, how can our listeners get involved? Brianna? Yeah, well, I definitely encourage everyone to sign the open letter. Um, like, that's probably one of the main things that, um, and share it um, as well. And we have a Facebook page, um, which is all linked to the website that the open letter is on. So maybe we can give you a link um, to put on your website or something. Yeah, um, definitely. We can put that in our uh, show notes after afterwards. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so that really helps, I think, because having this long list of yeah names and people who reject the idea that yeah the, this Liberal Party think tank should be allowed onto our campus and allowed to disseminate their views is, I think, important for demonstrating that this isn't some kind of question around you know um, free speech or political you know differences. It's actually the university ramming through something that people do not want on mm-hmm. their campus, um, and then. Yeah, aside from that, I think we will be planning on doing stuff um, when we can on campus around um, the yeah the institute on campus. So yeah, I think following the Facebook page and um, keeping an eye out for that, as well as plans for more forums and online events um, going forward. Yeah, awesome. Um, Brendan, is there anything that you wanted to add? Um, yeah, and I, I think a lot of it is just trying to find creative ways to get more people involved whenever we're in lockdown. So emailing your twos, emailing other community members, letting or, and promoting the, the campaign on social media. Um, some of the supporters of the group are some socialists, and what they're going to do is um, meet up with the young liberals online and debate Robert Menzies and really try to shame Ooh, them for supporting such really a... interesting. I'd yeah. be very keen to tune into that. <laughs> 
Yeah, that should be coming up um, within the next couple of weeks. So stay tuned on on social media for that. And also, yeah, start sort of peeling back the veneer because mm. the Ramsey Center for Western Civilization was really open and overt with its racism. The Menzies Center tries to be a little bit covert, but I'd argue that it's equally racist. And whenever you dig a little bit deeper at the stuff at Melbourne Uni, they have contracts with Lockheed Martin, the largest weapons manufacturer in the world. They have Rio Tinto that destroys a 40,000-year-old indigenous um, architectural sites and their mining experts that have buildings and, and lecture theaters named after them. So there's a lot more than just the Menzies Center that points to sort of the lack of democracy and the corporate corruption and, and institutional bigotry of the university. And we need to fight all of that. Wow, that's such a powerful note to end on. Um, Brendan, thank you so much to you and Brianna for, for joining us on, on Tuesday Breakfast today to talk to us about this and for your ongoing work um, as part of this campaign. We'll definitely share a lot of those links um, in our show notes and, and try to get our listeners involved. Thanks for coming on the show today. Cheers, thanks. So that was Brianna and Brendan from the Stop the Menzies Institute um, campaign talking to us about uh, what exactly the Menzies Institute is and and what the impact could be um, on the university. Um, We'll be back right after this. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Koko puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao, and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Koko ethically source cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingkoko.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. All right, so next up we have uh, with us Julie Kuhn, who is the CEO of WIRE. Um, WIRE is a Victorian statewide organisation with a vision of creating a society in which women are safe, respected, valued and empowered to making genuine choices in their lives. And WIRE, along with um, other community organisations, has written an open letter to the government urging for action at the 2021 Women's Safety Summit, which launched uh, yesterday. Uh, Welcome to the show, Julie. Julie, are you there? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Great. Yes, sorry. We had a small technical error. Ah, lovely. Um, So... Thanks for joining us this morning. Um, as I just mentioned, WIRE has written an open letter urging the government to address women's economic security as a part of the national, uh, sorry, recently announced national plan to reduce violence against women and their children. Um, I was hoping you could tell us why it's important to address economic security specifically. Uh, my, 
Most definitely, because WIRE speaks to women and gender-diverse and non-binary people every day about this situation. And half our calls are from people that are experiencing um, family violence. And we hear how difficult it is to leave when there is no certainty around income and that people do not have access to the government supports that they need in order to to thrive, which could mean that they feel forced to stay in relationships that are abusive. And in particular, I'm thinking about um, temporary visa holders that don't have access to um, free education, free healthcare, they don't have access to, to Centrelink payments. And so you think about how are these people going to cope if they if they leave a partner who could be incredibly abusive but at least they have a roof over their head and this is not this is true for temporary visa holders but it's also true for for other people that because of the financial abuse they're experiencing um, don't have any access to the household money so when they leave they're basically um, starting from scratch so we really need the government to be there but it, it's actually more than that because there's a gender pay gap of 14.2%. It increased by 0.8% this year. We, to, for women to be safe, they need to have access to adequate income so that they and their children can thrive. And one of the things that we see over and over again... The, Feminised work is lowly paid, that there is workplace harassment, whether it be from sexism or racism or ableism, which chases women out of the workforce and into poverty, and these things need to change. Yeah, and the intersections of that, um, all those things are really important. You know, if a woman is on a temporary visa, you know, and is a woman of colour, um, she she'll be experiencing a variety of intersections of all those um, things that you just mentioned as well. Yes, yes, and and that is why the um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander delegation to the the summit on on the next national safety plan has said they want their own plan. Um, that their needs are just not being met, and and why um, and other services, uh, most other services are, are very much supporting that that call as well. Yeah, and has there um, been a great impact of COVID on the gender pay gap and the other issues that women experience? It, I'm not sure what impact it has on the gender pay gap, but we, but COVID most definitely has been having an impact on on women, um, and and any and those that are expected to be the primary carers, which is usually women, gender diverse and non-binary people. So many of people, even if they've been able to retain their job, have had to go to zero hours to support their children in schooling. Mm. Uh, Others, like we know that the retail trade has been hit really hard with with COVID and that is a feminised industry. The, the other thing that we're seeing is that feminised industries like aged care and childcare have got all this expectation on them and are considered so essential, but they're still incredibly low paid. And 
in that first lockdown, there was a whole lot of incriminations about um, aged care workers and how dare they work in three different places mm-hmm. um, and and spread COVID. But my thought was the exact opposite. How dare we set up a system in which women need to do three jobs in order to have a a livable income and even then sometimes not livable. So COVID has shown, uh, has really highlighted the vulnerabilities that um, in the economic system and we need to learn from that and and change. And so we know that our COVID-led recovery needs to centre women but we see things like the federal government centering construction work which is important but it's a male dominated industry we need it to focus on um, feminized industries absolutely i also thought it was interesting in your in the open letter that um, you mentioned that financial abuse is kind of considered an accepted form of family violence yes because of, yes. you know, the gender norms that are so pervasive in our society where men are considered to be the earners of the family and, uh, you know, it, of course, contributes to um, the control and economic abuse of women. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a stat I often like to um, repeat because it, 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 it still shocks me when, when I say it. And when I say it, I've, I've got to go, oh, can I, I'll, I'll just make sure that's correct. 19% of people um, fr- that responded to the National Community Attitude Survey, which is a huge survey across Australia, said that it was okay to control your partner using money. This makes financial abuse the most acceptable form of family violence in Australia. It shows us how much work that we have to do, that 19% of the population are saying that it is okay to manipulate, to extort, to create fear around money to get what you want in a relationship. It's, it's, it's purely horrifying. Absolutely. And WIRE has been doing a lot of um, work around this for years um, with financial literacy workshops and things like that for women. Look, we have been. We we actually prefer not to call it financial literacy, but financial capability. And the reason why I say that is that it is really common for um, women and gender diverse non-binary people to be blamed for the poverty that they're experiencing. And the response is teach them how to use it. Um, to use and utilise a budget and everything will be fine. But financial capability is about learning the skills of money management, but it is also about having the confidence to make financial decisions. And if people are told that they're bad money managers, it's harder to make decisions, and we know that happens to so many women. Mm -hmm. The other thing that financial capability includes is working to make sure that we have the structures and systems that gives people a safety net. And that's a really important part of our financial capability that WIRE embraces as well. So a lot of the um, the demands that we've got in our open letter really talks about the government using its resources, it, the ATO regulations, Centrelink, the family court, it, what it funds to increase women's economic security and and 
eliminate family violence. Yeah, I think that's a really important shift in uh, the language from literacy to capability. It, it shifts shifts the onus away from the women. So, mm, definitely. Definitely. Um, well, um, I think that's all we have time for today, Julie. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, if that conversation has brought up anything for you, you can call WIRE's phone support line on 1300 134 130. Um, and we will include other resources, including the WIRE website, in our show notes today. Thanks again, Julie. Thank you so much. Um, up next, we're going to play uh, a track um this song uh Carnegie and I are really excited to play this week um I think it's going to get you in the mood to dance um it is Believe by Cher
So just playing in the background there uh, for your Tuesday morning is the song Believe by Cher. Ah, that was so bouncy. (laughs) (laughs) Really needed that. (laughs) So glad we finally got to play it. (laughs) Um, Joining us now is Lucy Kralkova, who is the Executive Director of Digital Rights Watch, Australia's premier digital rights and freedoms advocacy group. You may recall that we've spoken to members of Digital Rights Watch before in the past, so we're very happy to have Lucy on board. Lucy, welcome to the show. Good morning. Lovely to be here. So at the end of August, um, the Surveillance Legislation Amendment, or the Identify and Disrupt Bill 2020, was passed by both houses without any significant changes after both an extended period of public comment, as well as a review by the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. This is quite troubling, as it's essentially given Australia a mass surveillance mandate. So Lucy, along with it, like as part of Digital Rights Watch Australia, you've been campaigning along with other human rights organisations to draw attention to a lot of bills that have been going through Parliament lately, uh, which have now passed without amendment. And so why is this one troublesome specifically? Yeah, well, in what is an increasing trend, it actually got passed within 24 hours in both houses um, after the Parliamentary Committee, as you mentioned, um, issued quite an extensive report. So I think there's a really worrying trend of the committee's findings um, being steamrolled. Um, and that's part of the problem. Um, obviously, the big issue with this bill is um, that it authorizes, uh, well, <laughs> I would say actually warrantless mass surveillance uh, because they've re-envisioned a little bit war- what a warrant means. Um, it's not overseen by a superior court judge. And um, there's a process actually to circumvent the warrants um, called emergency authorization. So I guess a huge part of the the problem with this bill for me is um, that it pretends <laughs> like there's a very secure system mm. for these powers um, that it gives law enforcement um, when there's really not. Um, and obviously, the issue around surveillance is that they're looking in the dark for evidence they don't know exists. <laughs> and one of the, of course, and one of the powers that the bill gives is um, a network activity warrant. So they really have the power to look at entire communications networks, um, you know, that's not just tapping one person's phone, that's really looking at, uh, you know, if you're using WhatsApp, that's looking at all the WhatsApp data they can capture in order to find some evidence um, to then carry further investigations. And I think that really fundamentally transforms the way that we think the justice system should work, um, because you're basically treating um, people as criminals by default and and looking for some wrongdoing if you're not sure it's there. Yeah, so that was like, I think that is the sort of most intimidating part about this bill in general, because as you said before, it reimagines the idea of what we consider a warrant to be. So I would consider a warrant to be on an individual and their individual communications and something that is very highly regulated by the court system and the legal system. But now those powers have been given to the Australian Federal Police and the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission in a way that is very broad. So when they say, you know, there's three different kinds of new warrants, these warrants are not anything like we've seen before. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, And the uh, Joint Committee in their report actually suggested, um, you know, further oversight, and they suggested that warrants go through superior court judges. 
because now in the process, um, if they get an emergency authorization, um, that's given by someone at AFP or, or ASIC. So essentially just someone going to their boss, <laughs> <laughs> which which really doesn't, you know, that doesn't introduce a system of checks and balances in the slightest. Um, but uh, the people who are entrusted with um, then doing uh, some sworn affidavits and stuff, it's tribunal members. It, it defers to um, the administrative um, tribunal members. So it really, it, I think, I think that's, for me, the most troubling thing with this bill, with assistance and access, or TOLA, which was passed in 2018, um, as well as some of the other things. It, 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 people don't read them in detail, obviously, <laughs> but I think it's really troubling that we're sort of dispersing powers um, in offices that weren't created to wield it. Um, you know, and identify and disrupt bill, as I mentioned, it defers to tribunal members. It also defers to the independent national um a security legislation monitor, which is a, a very <laughs> um, sort of obscure office. It's it's one person who's appointed to review legislation, um, but they can only issue and report. They they don't have any real power. They can't, uh, you know, recommendations they issue are suggestions. There's no um, binding um, responsibility for parliament to act on them, for the government to act on them. So when you really look at who has any... Um, who holds any real power to to hold uh, law enforcement accountable? Um, that's really not in the bill, and that that's a that's a real problem. Yeah. So, what does this mean for people who are potentially affected by this? Is it? I know there's like been a lot of like superficial trying to understand what this bill means for the average person, but I I do think it's important to talk about it in very broad terms, which is that. Is it true that if you're subject to an investigation that you'll never know and won't re- receive any legal advice about it? Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And that's something that I like to uh, point out because whenever I, you know, as a human rights um, advocate, um, when I read legislation, I read, okay, how, what does this mean for me as an individual? What are the channels in here that I see? Um you know, if, if I was impacted, what would be the redress? Who could I go to? What court do I defer to? And um, they really don't see um, the need, <laughs> I guess, the need for an individual to have rights in these contexts, <laughs> um, which is <laughs> which is a problem. Uh, so that's something I've campaigned on in the past for um, assistance and access as well, is that, you know, at, Sometimes you can't be notified that you're under surveillance because it's a part of an investigation. But I think if you're living in a democratic country, you should be notified after the fact, at least, you know, just a letter, uh, let's say, in the mail that says um, you've been a part of this operation. Um, Nothing's, you know, no proceedings are going to be filed. We've now completed uh, this, you know, and we've uh, interfered with this and this uh, channel uh, under these powers. And I think you have a right to know that as a citizen, and you can challenge that. Maybe it was totally justified. Um, at the very least, uh, you know, you have a sort of right, but also technologically um, that could have interfered with your own um, sort of security. So you have a right to understand what the government <laughs> tampered yeah, with. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so I think that's really missing. And no one ever seems to think that's important. 
Yeah. It, it makes me, it reminds me of like, you know, older activists talking about how they had ASIO files and they could request them after the fact um, yeah. and having all this being documented. But in this particular situation, there's no notice after the fact and there is a retention period as well as other warrants to inform other investigations, but no sort of um, capability on your part to find out what's well. happened. Yeah, and I think the retention period is particularly worrying. So it's it's five years. Um, the things they collect through network activity warrants, actually, because they're so broad, they can't be used directly in court, but they can be used to inform further warrants and investigations, which I think is actually incredibly dark. Yeah. <laughs> so, so they can wiretap entire networks, um, and any data that they um, kind of collect, they can keep up to five years. And we know from some of the hearings about data retention, for instance, that were held at the parliament, that if they hold certain type of data, they use it for other investigations. You know, so if, if someone was uh, being investigated for human trafficking um, and it informs a case about drugs later, um, they'll keep it, which sounds like I think you might think, oh, those are really terrible people. But we know historically that it's not just the really serious criminals um, who get in. Uh, who get um, affected by these laws? It's it's activists, mm. particularly um, journalists, uh, you know, political dissidents. In the UK, um, there's, as you mentioned, there's a real, um, there's so many case studies of activists who were able to request their files, and you see that um, law enforcement um, loves to collect data and information on people that they think are a threat, and then they identify and disrupt bill destruction of property or threat um, to a person's property or um, infrastructure. So if, if you're doing anything um, like planning to sabotage traffic in the CBD, you know, as a part of a protest or um, spray painting a building, you fall under the scope of that bill. Yeah. So when MPs go on record to say it's only going to catch the most serious criminals, don't worry about it, it's never going to affect anyone, that's really nice that you can say that, but you didn't write that into the bill. That yeah. is a very, very broad, very loosely worded bill. And it's a bareface lie. Yeah. Like, it, it's not something that they can guarantee or, um, you know, facilitate in any meaningful way to say, oh, well, it's not everyone. It's only the, you know, the, the pedophiles and the terrorists and all those people among us. But um, they're always used as a means for putting in these kind of laws. But they're rarely the, oh, the ones who face, like, the worst consequences. Well, absolutely. And I think there's always a rhetoric in Australia uh, around environmental activists uh, mm -hmm. as terrorists, um, you know, or, or sort of actions that they end up taking um, as equating to that. So I think especially in Australia, you're always a step and a hop away yeah. <laughs> uh, from terrorists being captured uh, and, and, and therefore a lot of activism um, that I think people uh, are very concerned about. So uh, we've got a bit of limited time, but I just wanted to touch what what is what can we do as an individual um, or as individuals to um, push back against this kind of legislation now? Yeah, well, look, they, they clearly don't think this is a voting issue. Um, they clearly don't think that people care enough. Um, so I would say if you can write to your MP, um, you know, at digitalrightswatch.org.au, um, you can find a really detailed post. I broke down all the powers and everything that, that's in this legislation. You can just forward them the text and say that you're concerned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, um, that, uh, that's 
that page particularly is really good for your understanding of the bill, and I really recommend it. We'll put it in the show notes. Great. I, yeah, I try to make it real simple. And then there's a petition right now on GetUp uh, on the Identify and Disrupt bill. Um, if you look, if you just pop that uh, into Google, <laughs> you'll get a result. But you can also find it um, on the on the GetUp page, and um, that calls for a repeal of the bill. I think we will use it to um, call for a human rights assessment of the bill. But regardless, if you want to add your voice to that petition, it's over 100,000 now. And um, that's a lot of voices. Yeah. So that would help us immensely. But yeah, just write to your MP. Be like, hey, I'm really concerned that there are no rights for individuals. Why did you let this pass? And just hold their feet to the fire a little bit. Like, make them uncomfortable that they keep doing this. Yeah, get a direct answer. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lucy. Really appreciate you coming onto the show to talk to us about this bill. Um, once again, Lucy is the Executive Director of Digital Rights Watch, and um, we will link to an article about the new mass surveillance mandate. Thank you so much, Lucy. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Um, thank you, Evie, for that interview. Um, well, this is, yeah, this is all we have time for today. It's been a huge, yeah. huge show. Jam-packed. <laughs> Jam-packed. Um, okay, we don't have a lot of time, so we'll do a very, very quick rundown. Um, we started off the morning listening from the grade fives and sixes from Sacred Heart uh, Primary. And then, Jen? Yeah, I spoke to Renuga Impakuma about Tamil Refugee Council and some GoFundMe pages. Yep, and I, I spoke to Brianna and Brendan from the Stop the Menzies Institute campaign. And Carnegie? And I spoke with Julie Kuhn, the CEO of WIRE, about uh, the Women's Safety Summit. And then you just heard me speak to Lucy from the Digital Rights Watch Association. Uh, tune in to 3CR um, every day this week for breakfast and also for Accent of Women coming up next. Bye.